Um, it's over many pages of A4. Um, one day I intend to put it onto an electronic version so I can give it to my children and their children. On the Stanton side, that's my mother's side, I have a, um, the family Bible, which goes back to 1826. It's probably the oldest book I own. Um, it is a real treasured possession and, and something that I intend to hand to my oldest grandson because he is Theodore Stanton Hamer and has been burdened with the same curse as I have, having two surnames, but not hyphenated. Um, on Joe's side of the family, her mother and brother have done extensive research on their family background. They also go back to the early 1800s, um, and they, um, but they are nothing, really, when we compare them to the family tree we've got here in Luke. But why is it important to people? Well, I think it's more to do with our need to know. In part, I think it comes from the need to separate ourselves from others, to find something that distinguishes us from other people. Imagine being able to say that you're a descendant from some royal family. I wonder if anybody's found that in their history. Or others, it may be more interesting to find they're a descendant from some villain. I'm pretty sure there's more of the latter in my side of the family tree than the other. Well, for Luke, it would appear that the genealogy of Jesus is very important. But it raises a question. Why is Luke's version of Jesus' family tree different to Matthew's? I wasn't willing to ask Joyce to read out Matthew's one as well. If, you're, if you want to see the differences, I suggest that you go home and read um, the one in Matthew. Ever since the early days of the church, many scholars have struggled, struggled to give a good reason to this question. The one that sits really well with me is that, is that in a small and close-knit community, there is every probability that somebody could trace their family tree from the same source by two different routes. In a small community such as the people of Israel, where marriage and intermarriage would have happened all the time, remember that the Jewish people wouldn't have married outside the Jewish community. Even today, if you have Jewish friends, you know how difficult that is for Jewish people today. I have friends that um, met when one of them came over from New Zealand. They fell in love, married, only to find out they were very closely related. So in Jesus' genealogy, it would make sense that there would be more than that one route to David and to Abraham being the two most important markers in Jesus' family tree. But Luke takes Jesus' family tree one step further. He goes back beyond Abraham to Adam and then to God. It would seem that Luke is using a different family tree and what goes before and comes after the final phrase is Jesus is the Son of God. But what does Luke mean? Well, he is using it in such in, in much more than just a title and maybe is trying to point out 
through the family tree stretching back to creation, to the creation of the world. It is a way of saying that Jesus is the intended Messiah of Israel, which is another word, another meaning for the Son of God. By going back to creation, he is saying that Jesus is the Messiah of the whole world, all of creation, the human race, will benefit from what he has come to do. But this global view of God's purpose is in the background because Luke makes three points in Jesus' baptism dialogue that we need to consider. You see, just before the genealogy, Jesus comes to to, uh, John, (laughs) at least to Luke, to John to be baptised. It reads, Now when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also, and when Jesus had been baptised, he was praying, the heaven opened, and the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Well, I think we need to firstly consider why Jesus came to be baptised. Since, since if you read earlier in uh, Luke, in verse 3, um, John's baptism was for the baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin. And according to elsewhere in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Hebrews 4.15, Jesus was without sin. Luke is telling us that Jesus came at the climax of John's ministry when, when what had happened? When all the people were baptised. And therefore, that Jesus was just not one of the crowd. His coming had special significance the way Luke puts his sentence together in verses 22 and 23 shows that the baptism is secondary to what happened afterwards. And what happened afterwards is of more importance. The baptism of people than the baptism of Jesus are simply introductory clauses to telling when the last three things happened. Let me point it out. After all were baptised and Jesus was baptised and Jesus prayed, then, then the heavens opened and the Spirit came and God spoke. In in exegetical terms, we look for the use of words like then um, because they often lead us to an important event. Jesus coming to to be baptised was a decisive step of commitment to the beginning of his public ministry. He was aligning himself with the people who were turning away from sin and trusting God and resolving to fulfil his calling in the Spirit. Luke's focus is, is on God's approval and confirmation of his son's resolve. Secondly, why does Luke mention that Jesus was praying when the heavens opened up? And the Spirit came and God spoke. None of the other Gospels tell us. Well, we're going to see in in Luke's Gospel 
that Luke loves to picture Jesus praying. He shows him praying at all crucial turning points of his life. Here at his baptism, at the selection of the 12 apostles, at Peter's confession, at the transfiguration, in Gethsemane, on the cross. He tells us that Jesus went repeatedly into the wilderness to pray and that he spent whole nights praying. The point of all this must be to show that even Jesus' life is a correlation between earnest prayer and the blessing of God. So finally, why does the Spirit come in the form of a dove? What is the significance of the Spirit's descending in the form of a dove and God's declaration of his love? God answers Jesus' prayer by sending his spirit in a visible form and then declaring verbally his delight in his son. You are my beloved, in you I delight. This is a green light for Jesus and not just a green light but a powerful enablement and directive. The way the spirit comes gives direction into how its power is to be used. We only ever hear Jesus use the word dove once, and that is in Matthew 10:16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as servants and innocent as doves. The dove is like an indication as to Jesus' purity, meekness, and innocence. It is not a majestic bird like an eagle. It's not fierce like a hawk or out of control like a cockatoo. It was simple, common, innocent, the kind of bird people could offer as a sacrifice. Doves and turtle doves were the only birds that could be offered in sacrifice. They were clean according to Mosaic law. It is like this was a directive to Jesus from the Father. The spirit with which I anoint you is not for display or for earthly battles. It is an anointment of sacrifice. Well, what does it mean for us today? Together, the baptism story and the family tree tells us where Jesus has come from, who he is and where he is going. As we, may, as, as we make Jesus' story our own story in our prayers and indeed in our baptism, we should expect both the blessing of the Spirit and to hear the quiet voice which reminds us of God's amazing, affirming love and of the path of vocation which lies ahead of each one of us. I mean...